So how many of you have broken the law? Okay, we've got some honest people in the room. Kids, I know we've got kids joining us today. I see you guys. Thank you for being here. I think it's awesome. You've even been fairly quiet so far and participated with everything in step, and uh, we're thrilled to have you with us. Maybe, maybe instead of the law, you could ask the question, have you ever broken a rule? Have you ever broken a rule? And uh, I didn't necessarily qualify that. Maybe you thought of just recently, maybe some of your minds went to ever. Have I ever broken the law? Maybe some of you said, yeah, in the last week. <laughs> maybe some of you on the way here, right? Like if we're honest, it's easy to drift up over the posted speed limits. And probably most of us were thinking of the laws of our community, of our state, of our nation. But what about God's laws? Have any, have any of us ever broken one of God's laws? Maybe you think of the Big Ten. Yeah, we got some hands going up. I wasn't even looking for hands, so thank you. Confession is good for the soul, right? Honesty is the best policy. We, we don't have to continue with the heads. It might get a little slow. No, I'm joking. We're not going anywhere too deep. But when we think of the Big Ten, most of us can even go back and, yeah, I, I told a lie once. Or I put something before God. I, I had an idol. And that's to say nothing of the Mishnah, the 600-plus laws and rules and regulations that came after the Ten Commandments. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus drives it all the way to the heart level. At the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, his classic quintessential teaching that he probably gave wherever he was, when it said he was teaching the crowds, he was probably teaching them some form or fashion or version or element of the Sermon on the Mount, and then the extra teachings would be added to that. And he says, man, if you've even, if you've even called a brother or sister a fool... Anybody? Don't, don't raise your hand. If you've even looked at somebody lustfully, he drives it to the heart level, not just the outward, but the inward. And if you think about that time that came to mind when you raised your hand initially, did you get caught or not? And I don't mean to be making light of breaking laws or breaking God's laws in particular. Did you know that you're guilty? even if you didn't get caught. This was a big revelation for me and wasn't my favorite thing about going to church uh, early on because I kind of had a morality that said do more good than bad and don't get caught doing the bad things. And so when the preacher told me that I was guilty even if I didn't get caught, something shifted. I used to feel bad when I got caught. And as I came to faith in Christ, and as I put my trust in Christ, and as I sought to pursue holiness, I, I started to feel bad even when I didn't get caught. And sin wasn't as much fun at that point, and with that realization. Let's admit it, you probably wouldn't have done it if it wasn't fun, at least at the beginning. Let's just push pause on that. It's getting a little uncomfortable, okay? We've, we've been having a great time in this God Is series. The last three weeks in particular for me have been very powerful as a sort of mini-series developed within that. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a, a message titled, God is Aware of Your Struggle. Then in the following week, Pastor Keith preached a great message on God being a good, good father on Father's Day. And this father who's watching, who's waiting for his son, his wayward son to come home, seeking his older self-righteous son and beckoning him to come in and join the celebration. And then last week, I preached a message 
that God is worth waiting on, even in the struggle, even when the struggle lasts longer, even when we can't make sense of the struggle, when we have a Job experience or a a Habakkuk experience, God is worth waiting on. And last week, the central verse of that passage, Habakkuk 2.4, says that the righteous shall live by faith, faith in the goodness of God, faith that it will get better, that eternity will be better, that eternity will be a very long time, and it will be better for a long time, so much so that Paul could say that he did not count the sufferings of this present age to even be worthy of comparing to the glory that awaits us. And that's good news if you find yourself in a season of suffering. And I had intended at some point in this series to to pick up on this phrase from Romans 3.26 that God is just and the justifier. Because if the righteous shall live by faith, then it matters what righteousness is, and it matters how we become righteous. Right? So the good news to Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, we have to ask that question, what is righteousness. Who are the righteous? And that word in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it both carries the the meaning of right standing with God. It's not just that you do more good than bad. It's that you have right standing with God, that when you stand before God, He can in justice say, not guilty. And so this is a pretty big deal. How do we become righteous, especially if we've sinned, even if we didn't get caught? And so I have some good news for you today, some very good news, especially if it's gotten a little uncomfortable. And maybe you're like, oh, I've heard this one, Pastor Mark. I I know about God being just and being the justifier. I, I can just play Angry Birds on my phone. No, nobody plays Angry Birds anymore. But don't play something else. Like, listen, lean in, because maybe somebody's going to come to mind at some point in this message. And something that's shared will be for them. Maybe it is for you. Maybe it is for somebody that's watching online. Maybe there's a young person in our midst that is hearing this for the first time. So let's all be praying and, and leaning in, because I think this is one of the most important doctrines, one of the most important theological concepts, that God is both just and the justifier. Man, we really want this. We really want him to not only be just, but to be the justifier. You see, if God is not just, then he can't be trusted to do what is right. If his sense of justice is not so bedrock that he never does anything wrong, that he only ever does what is perfect and right and good, I don't want to serve any other kind of God. And I don't think you do either. It occurred to me recently that God only ever deals in covenants. Has it ever occurred to you? Like, are you willing to only deal in covenants in all of your relationships, in all of your agreements, big or small? God always makes a covenant. He always binds himself legally because he has no intention of breaking the covenant. He has no intention of lying or doing anything other than what is eternally just and right and good. That was a mind-blowing thought for me. I've entered into some agreements that I would not want to make a covenant to hold up my end of the bargain. Maybe you have too at some point in your life. You see, if he wouldn't keep his promises, if we couldn't be counted on to treat people fairly, 
It's a big deal that he's just. You see, the Greek and Roman gods of mythology that were present at the same time, they were fickle. They were unreliable. They changed their mind. They had humanity as puppets on a string is the way that it was interpreted. Not the God that we are talking about. Not Yahweh. This is no petty God. No fickle God. So he's not only just, he's also the justifier. And this is a big deal because if he doesn't justify us, who will? Read your Old Testament. Human history is replete with evidence that we cannot justify ourselves. We need someone to justify us, to bring us into right standing with God, to make us righteous. We can't do it on our own. We can't keep the law. We've proven that we can't. And no other religion has a God who sacrifices his own life in order to bring people into relationship with him. And he's been doing it for a long time. The theology of the rainbow that comes after the flood, when Noah's, you know, the ark, the waters are receding, there's a rainbow. You know that theologians and Bible scholars say, you know, that actually just says it's a bow. It doesn't say it's a rainbow. In the original language, it's a bow. Where does the arrow point? The arrow points to heaven. If you look at a rainbow, every time I see a rainbow, we saw this beautiful double rainbow after that storm a week or so ago. It's all muddy. But it's a reminder that God's saying, I'm going to satisfy this covenant that he's making with Noah. Then in Genesis 15, there's this really spooky kind of setting that gets set up between, between Abraham and God. And it talks about him cutting birds and animals in half and that God passes through it as a smoking fire pot. And you think, wow, that's bizarre. And yet covenant theology at the time said that you would walk through that saying, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, I'll be cut in two as well. God's been doing this for a long time. He's been making covenants fully intending to be not just just, but the justifier. It all points to him. It all points to what we're talking about today. You see, we want and we need both a just God and a justifying God. Praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we have one. That's what we just celebrated at the table in communion. The body of Jesus, the body of God himself, broken for us. The blood of Jesus the blood of God himself shed for us to establish a new covenant and to bring us into relationship, to pay the penalty for sin, past, present, and future. This is good news that we're talking about today. And the context for this, we're going to be in Romans chapter 3. So if you like to follow along in a Bible, you brought your own, great. Start finding Romans chapter 3. If you need a Bible, we have them spread throughout the sanctuary in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those, turn to page 1750. I want to give you kind of an overview of the first few chapters of Romans because it's going to be important for what we're talking about here in the context of what Paul says to the church in Rome. That's why we call it Romans, because it's a letter that Paul wrote to Romans. It's been called the gospel according to Paul by some theologians. I think maybe even Martin Luther, the famous Protestant revolutionary and reformer, said this is, this is basically Paul's gospel. It's a deep theological exposition of the gospel and of Paul's theology. And it was written to a church in Rome where there were both Jews who had fled during the diaspora when, when way back five, six hundred years before 
Jesus, there was a diaspora as, as the Babylon, Babylonians and the Assyrians came in and they took over the holy lands that we know of today. The Jews fled everywhere. And some of them even ended up in places like Rome. And so there were Jewish believers who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and there were also Gentile believers that had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they weren't quite sure how to get along. And so this letter to the Romans, especially the first few chapters, deals with this. And it's very clear that Paul is seeking to settle this issue, to establish a common ground for both Jewish converts and Gentile converts. And he begins by explaining that God's righteous in his wrath against sinners, that, that it is good for God to be righteous. Because of his justice, he can't just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't just excuse it, not for the Jewish people, not for the Gentile people. He begins with the Gentiles first, and so much of the second half of chapter 1 is addressed to the Gentile believers. Right after he makes sort of his thesis statement, he actually quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.17. This is his thesis statement for the whole book. For the gospel, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is, righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So he's saying you're righteous through your faith, not through your heritage. The Jews don't have a leg up and the Gentiles aren't a leg down. The Gentiles aren't in a plus one position because they didn't make all the mistakes that the Jews did. We're leveling the playing field. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So he deals with Gentiles first in chapter one, and he speaks about a general revelation that God has made himself known to those that would be seeking him. And he's made himself known through Jewish people all throughout the diaspora as well. Just when the Jews are like, yeah, tell them, Paul, <laughs> he switches to them in chapter two, in the first part of chapter three. And he's making a point that he drives home and makes crystal clear in Romans 3, 9 through 18, that none are righteous. He cites five Old Testament verses from the Psalms and Isaiah to establish this fact that we are all sinners, that we all need to be saved from sin, that we can't justify ourselves. We need someone to make us right with God, someone to bring us into right standing with God. So that's where we pick up in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. This is where we're going to camp out today. And I'm going to just read a verse or two at a time. And we're going to walk through this passage and build block by block, as Paul does in his argument. And so in verses 19 and 20, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You think, well, that's not good. Well, it's good to know that you have sinned and separated yourself from God so that you can deal with that sin, so you can be brought back into right standing with God. And so in verse 19, this is a culmination or a conclusion of the whole first three chapters, but particularly that section that precedes it, where all the scriptures are quoted in your Bible in verses 9 through 18. And he starts again with the Jews, those under the law. He's talking about the Jews as God's covenant people. They were under the law. But then he adds in the Gentiles and everyone else when he says, every mouth 
shall be silenced. The whole world will be held accountable to God. And he's referring back to that general revelation that he teaches about in the second half of chapter 1. So I'm just trying to make sure we're all on the same page here, that the, the ground is still level at the foot of the cross, that the Jews nor the Gentiles, neither one of them has a leg up on the other. They're both in the same position. And he drives that home in verse 20 with the therefore. If you've been coming here for long, you know that you've got to circle the therefores in your Bible. That's when the application of what has been taught is made crystal clear. There's a therefore, and it's there for a reason. And the therefore says, therefore, as a result of all of this, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And so that's a conclusion to his initial argument, and he's making it very clear that we're not declared righteous any longer by observing the law, by religion, by do more, try harder, by, oops, I messed up, so now I have to do this or do this or do this to make atonement for my sin. He's saying we're not going to be declared righteous in God's sight. We're not going to have right standing with God through something that we do, through our behavior, through our performance. And this is really important because somehow performance and religion got smuggled into Christianity. And they don't belong. They don't belong at all. Yes, we need to be moral. Yes, the law was good. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And we're supposed to be like Jesus. So we should obey the law perfectly because we want to, not because we have to or we're going to get zapped or fried. But performance and religion don't belong. And Jesus, Paul is making that crystal clear. No one will be declared righteous based on the law. We're going to be declared righteous in some other way. But rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin, both for the Jew and the Gentile. We become aware of our need for a Savior. We become aware that our sin will separate us from God. It has separated us from God, and it will separate us from God for eternity. And so it is in this next section, in verses 21 through 26, where we see God's justice and love reconciled in the cross. God's justice and his love become reconciled in the cross. Let's look at verse 21 and 22. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, there are churches in the world where somebody would say, praise God, when those verses are read, because this is good news. Look at the mess we were in. Everybody. No one was exempt, not the Jews, not the Gentiles. That covers it all. And when he says, but now, in verse 21, it's one of those but God moments that I was talking about a few weeks ago. Maybe you caught that message. Maybe you saw the video that we shared. It was just that little section of but God moments in our lives, but God moments in my own life, but God's moments throughout Scripture. You know, something like 7,000 people ended up watching that little video. It's the most we've ever had. Somebody saw it. Somebody said, oh, yeah, but God. And they liked it, and they commented on it, and they shared it. When you see those little videos and it resonates with you, like it and comment and share on it. You never know who might see it. It's a but God moment. It's a but now. A righteousness from God apart from the law through Christ. 
That's what, Jesus, or that's what Paul is saying here. That this has been made known. And basically Paul's saying, man, we were in a mess. All of us. But God. We were in an impossible situation. But God. My kids, have you ever made a big mess? Far beyond your ability <laughs> to clean it up, right? And you realize, I'm out of luck. I'm not going to get this one put back together before mom shows up. What's your best option at that point? You go get mom. You tell her, I'm sorry. I made a really big mess, and I need your help to clean it up. That's what Paul's talking about. For all of us, we were all in a mess. We were all way beyond our ability or our capacity to justify ourselves. And God made a way for all who would believe in Jesus Christ. Now is where we get into the part that maybe you've heard a couple of times before. This is part of that Romans road. If anybody's ever shared that with you, it's a brilliant way of leading people to Christ through the book of Romans and through key verses in the book of Romans. In verse 23 and 24, that tail end of 22, and then 23 and 24, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All have sinned, and all have fallen short, and all are justified freely. All who believe in Christ are justified freely by His grace. Grace is a gift. Grace can't be earned. Grace is an unmerited favor from God. And he talks about redemption, and redemption is so important. He says all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That word redemption in the New Testament, when we translate that from Greek, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, that word redemption literally means a release effected by payment of a ransom. Isn't that beautiful? A release effected by payment of a ransom. That we were held captive by sin. That's where my mind goes when I think of a ransom. I think of a kidnapping or somebody being held captive and a ransom being posted. That if you pay this amount, we'll give them back. But you know you're dealing with criminals, right? So Jesus pays the ransom for us. We get redemption through his blood. The release from captivity to sin paid for us by Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of a purchase from the debt of sin. A slave being set free. This is how much that slave's worth. You want to set it free? You're going to have to pay that. We were slaves to sin. Jesus paid the price. In a couple of days, we're going to celebrate Independence Day. It's not just the 4th of July. It's not just a day. It's a significant day. It's a day in which the people, the leaders of the United States, declared their independence from Great Britain. There was redemption. Now, they had to fight for it, and that was the Revolutionary War, and you don't need a history lesson from me. But it was a big deal. They were wanting to be redeemed. Britain had said, we deem that land ours, and the people that live there are ours, and they're subjects to the king. And they said, no, not anymore. <laughs> and you can do the same thing with sin and the effects of sin in your life through Jesus Christ. You can say, sin is not my captor anymore. Jesus has paid the penalty for my sin. Jesus has delivered me 
not just from death, but into life. He's delivered me from sin, not just from the penalty of sin. This is good news, very good news. There's been a change in title. (laughs) We belong to someone else. Now in verse 25 and 26, this idea of God being the just Being just and the justifier is so important that Paul goes through it twice, back to back. He really wants us to get this. He really wants us to understand this, that God is not unjust in forgiving our sins. And so in verse 25, he says, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because his forbearance, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So in verse 25, the first half there, when it talks about a sacrifice of atonement, it's talking about Jesus being the sacrifice of atonement, the sacrifice that atones for our sin. And his Jewish audience would have known all about the the Old Testament day of atonement, when the sins of the people were placed upon a scapegoat and it was sent out into the wilderness to die. They understood atonement. They understood that they couldn't atone for their own sins, that something else had to atone at all points to Jesus. Read through Leviticus carefully with a good study Bible, and you'll see Jesus on every page. And so atonement is how we get made right. In my introduction, I asked if any of you had broken the law. And one of my favorite laws to break until this year was speeding. I sped all the time. My wife nudged me about it occasionally. I felt a tinge of conviction when it got more than five or seven or ten miles over the speed limit. And I finally realized, you know what, this is rebellion. That's what it is. It's sin. (laughs) It's not a biblical law. It never tells me to obey the speed limit, but it does tell me to come under the authority of government, and, and I just decided to get serious about it this year. I think I've had about five days where I couldn't check the box at the end of the day that I, I didn't speed. I've been setting my crews all over town. I've been aggravating Sioux Falls people (laughs) like crazy. They're so mad that I would drive the speed limit. And they go racing around me, and then we end up at the same light. And it's oddly satisfying. (laughs) But I did get caught a couple times. I was guilty thousands of times. I got caught a couple times. And the police officer or the highway patrolman wrote me a ticket that said I needed to pay, I needed to make atonement for my sin of speeding. Now, if I had to make atonement for every single one of those at some point, we'd be doing a fundraiser, okay? (laughs) Fortunately, I got caught twice, fortunately for me. But I had to make atonement, and so I paid the penalty for my sin, and I had right standing before the state and local government that had caught me speeding. Now that's a small one that we laugh at. But magnify that in your own life, every sin, caught or not. Can you make atonement for that? Do you want to be on the self-atonement plan? I don't think so. 
I don't think so. I think we want a sacrifice for atonement that God has made on our behalf. And now in verse 25, he gives the justification, the justifier part first, and then mentions he did this to demonstrate his justice. Verse 25 reads a little odd in the first in the New International Version where it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. I, I, it's atonement for those who have faith in his blood. It is not atonement for those who do not. The ESV gets that a little more clearly. It puts a comma at the end of verse 24. And so the ESV reads, and are justified by his grace as a gift, comma, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that reads a little clearer, but how many of you used propitiation in the last week? Anybody? Not one. Well, propitiation means sacrifice of atonement. It means to pay the penalty for another. Expiation is another one. I haven't used expiation more than once or twice, and it was in a seminary paper. Expiation means to wipe clean. Propitiation ties that act of wiping clean to Jesus' sacrifice for us, that the slate has been wiped clean. All of it, all the sin, caught or not, every single one. Man, this is good news. And he makes it clear that God, in his forbearance, which is a fancy word for patience there in the second half of verse 25, in his forbearance, this shows us the heart of the Father. He had no delight in punishing. He had no delight in the wrath that he had towards sin. That he had forbearance. He had patience. He wasn't ignoring it. And it's crystal clear that sin can't be left unpunished forever because he is just. And he could not be a God of justice if he ignored sin. Do you see why this matters so much? Do you see why Jesus is so pivotal and so important? And so then in verse 26, he ties it all together. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. This was 2,000 years ago, but we still are benefactors of this. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's why the title, God is just and the justifier. Now Warren Wiersbe nails this on the head in his commentary. He asked the question, how can God be both just and the justifier? The answer is in Jesus Christ. When Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the world, he fully met the demands of God's law and also fully expressed the love of God's heart. That's why the cross is so beautiful and so powerful. I talk often about how it represents our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with His people. But I also see today that it is the intersection of God's justice, His law, and His love. And that Jesus dying on the cross satisfied the righteous demands of God's law and fully represents His love for us. Love like we've got no other thing to compare it to. It's so big. It's so immaculate. We can't comprehend it. And so that's why we call it the good news. It is really good news. In Jesus, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he was right to do it. The cross is where God is just and justifier. 
And so the big question is, what is our response? Is it indifference? Much of the world is indifferent to the cross of Christ. Is it hostility or rejection? That is growing as well. Or is it faith, reliance, clinging to, trusting in? That's what belief is. That's what faith is, is to rely upon, to cling to, to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And to live a life worthy of that calling. To live a life that responds to that from this day forward. God has allowed us to ignore it. We can't opt out of the consequences of ignoring it, but he does allow human free will. He does allow us to ignore the cross. And not deciding is a decision. Putting it off could be perilous. Opting out, rejecting, choosing the self-atonement plan is ill-advised. Self-atonement involves separation from God forever in a place called hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever, forever. Or we can cling to it. And only one response will make us right with God. Only one response brings us into right standing with God, and that is the response of faith. That is the response of surrender. That is the response of lordship to the God who is just and justifier. That's our bottom line today. Only Jesus can make us right with God. Only the cross can make us right with God. Only on the cross do we see God as just and justifier and him opening his hands and his arms to receive us and to bring us into the family of God. Jesus is the perfect older brother. I mentioned this just in passing, but when we take this back to the story of the prodigal son who ran away and squandered his living and his wealth and his family's wealth in all kinds of terrible things. He had an older brother. We have an older brother too. The difference is our older brother came to find us. Our older brother sacrificed his life to bring us back into the family of God. It's good news. It's powerful. Only Jesus can pay the debt that we owe because only Jesus could live a perfect, sinless life. So he's the only one that can redeem us from the debt that we owe to sin and death. And he conquered sin and death on our behalf. And so the question today would be, are you right with God? If you're watching this online, are you right with God? Because you can be today. Is he your just justifier? Is he your righteous justifier? Or is he just everyone else's justifier? And if you've been saved for a long time and you're just like, yeah, this is good news. Thank you. Who needs to know what you know? Somebody should be coming to mind. This is the best news ever. Who can you tell? Who needs to know what you need? You know. Who needs to know that God is not only just, but he's the justifier, that he made a way for us to come back to him, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and that all are welcome to receive payment for the debt that they can't pay any other way? Would you invite them? Would you share this good news with them? Would you tell them your story?
your testimony. You were separated from God by your sin, that God intervened in your life in some powerful way at some point in time, and that you are now a part of God's family. That's what a testimony is. You put that into your own language. You can do this in two or three minutes, and you can open doors of conversation with people, and you can help them see, I'm not any better than you. I need grace just as much as anybody else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Paul spent three chapters explaining that, making that clear, so that we would all be able to latch on to the grace that God has made available to us through Jesus Christ. And so we have an opportunity to respond. We have an opportunity to make commitments. We have an opportunity to come to an altar, to lay down our own sin and receive God's grace. Today could be the day of salvation for someone in this room, for someone watching online. We have an opportunity to receive God's grace. We have an opportunity to respond to his love. That's what worship is. So if you stand to sing this song, don't just sing it because it's what everybody else is doing, but sing it because his grace is so amazing that you can't help but sing. And when you walk out these doors, you don't have to stop. You don't have to bookend that experience. You can share that grace with everyone you encounter. And pursue a life of holiness in response to this grace as a witness to point people to Jesus. However you choose to respond, I hope you'll respond in faith because the righteous will live by faith. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news that we can be free Free not only from the penalty of our sin, but free from sin itself. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And if there is one listening to this, one within the sound of this voice, that is feeling you beckon them, feeling you call them to surrender, to confession, to repentance, and to new life in Christ, then I hope and pray that they will pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I invite you to be my justifier, to make me right with God, to pay the penalty for the sin that I can't pay on my own. And to lead me into a life, a new life, a life of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, an eternal life with you. Please show me. Please lead me. Please guide me. Help me to follow. Help me to serve. Help me to worship you with the rest of my life. If you prayed that prayer, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Heaven is thrown open to you. Please tell someone. If you've been a believer for some time, please tell someone. Share the good news. Share the grace with another. It's unlimited. It goes forever. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your amazing grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.